stuff is happening. Push the poor head with doing stuff. Oh, now it's happening. Hi, I'm Margarita. And I'm Brittany. I'm straight up. And this is Women Crush Wednesdays by Nywift. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is Margarita. I know summer is coming to an end, so everyone is in some sort of transition. Um, We are a little late with this podcast, but this is August. Um, I've been all over the place and busy with clients, film projects, and trying to somehow fit summer in there in between. Um, While my co-host Brittany is also busy working out on location, and she's being an awesome mom, and also trying to somehow fit summer in. So, you know, August is always difficult. I'm sure all of you know exactly how it feels, so please excuse us for the lateness in this podcast. But be assured, we'll be right back to our regularly scheduled program at the end of this month. Um, But at the same time, I'm also excited to share this podcast with you all because we're highlighting some amazing women who are doing some amazing things. And these women will both inspire you and hopefully help you as they share some information with you. So our first guests are going to be Simone Pirro and Jennifer Fox. Simone Pirro is our current NYWIFT board president. She's also an executive producer on the HBO's Emmy-nominated film, The Tale, uh, which stars our NYWIFT muse honoree, Laura Dern, actually. Um, So Brittany and I sat down with Simone and the film's director, Jennifer Fox. Um, Together, they share some insight on the financials of making this film and how they were able to establish the financing and get this film out there for everyone to see. So hopefully that'll give you guys some um, ideas uh, to get your project started as well. Um, So then we also bring you a special conversation with NYWIFT member Crystal R. Emery. Crystal is a filmmaker, producer, writer, activist, and CEO of the nonprofit organization You Are You, The Right to Be. And she's also a quadriplegic, but that doesn't stand in her way. So, Crystal recently contributed to Variety in a special article. Uh, regarding the diversity in in the industry for those with disabilities. Um, We had shared that on our social media with everyone, and we talk about it a little bit further in our interviews and discussion with her. So it's pretty inspiring and motivating, um, so please be sure to check that out. Okay, so that is without further ado. Here we sit down with Simone Pirro and Jennifer Fox. So take it away, Brittany. Um, well, let's start off by thanking both of you ladies. I'm here with Simone Perro and Jennifer Fox of HBO's The Tale. Um, and let's just dive into it. Um, the first question is for Simone. Um, we're dying to know, at what point in the, the whole development process of the project or the production process did you become involved? And, you know, what made you decide to jump on the project? Um, great. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, Let's see, Jennifer and I worked together on her six-part series, Flying Confessions of a Free Woman, back around, mm-hmm. I think, around 2008. Um, and then a few years after that, Jen approached me about a feature film script she was developing out of Flying, which turns into what we know today as the tale. Mm-hmm. And you know, after reading Jen's script and the complexity and brilliance and uniqueness of it, it didn't take me long. Uh, to decide to get involved. Um, Jen also had a critical understanding 
of the power of visual storytelling to help people and to change and deepen conversations around important social issues. Um, and she had this vision that she wanted to use the tale to start a new and richer global understanding in our culture around narratives of abuse and trauma. And so for me, my work as a film social impact producer, this was music to my ears. Um, so I came on board in this er, very early script writing stage, um, you know, way before any anything was shot, um, and really to develop a plan on how the film could be used way beyond the screen, for example, in local communities and fields of sure. practice. Sure. <clears throat> yeah, so, sure. I mean, um, yeah, I can just I can just imagine. I mean, it really it really tells a perspective that I don't think anybody's ever seen before. It's really a powerful story that I'm sure has legs beyond just going to the theater and seeing it and going to the and watching it on HBO for sure. Exactly. And um, what oh. we didn't foresee at that point um, was that that would be a, an invaluable strategy. Uh, of using this, um, you know, power of the film also on a grassroots level for social impact, uh, that that would be tremendous in terms of funding the film and somewhat embarking on a new funding model for fiction filmmaking. Yes, well, we know filmmakers are always looking for new ways to embark on funding, (laughs) to get funding. Um, So this is a question for both of you. Um, You know, since especially, Simone, now knowing that you kind of got involved way at the beginning of the project, at what point during the tale's development do you start thinking about budget and, you know, how that's going to affect the story that you're trying to tell? Uh, Yeah, well, I'll throw that to Jen, yeah. (laughs) Hi there. Um, you know, when you're looking at a script like this, it's um, it's an elastic conversation about what the film's going to cost, and often it's driven by, well, what can we actually finance? And at the beginning of looking around for partners, many people said, well, you know, given the fact that this is your first feature, fiction feature, even though you've done docs, you'll never be able to put together a film over a million and we had that conversation for a while um, with different people. And frankly, the script is so complex. It has period 1973 in the present. It has um, stunts, children, animals. I really, at a certain point, just said, forget it. This film cannot be made for a million. And that took it into a whole nother ball game. And... Coming from documentary, you know, we're very scrappy when it comes to financing. Um, right. And I, we didn't know, you know, how it would roll, but um, eventually the film settled at a budget. You know, every we kept trying different things. We At one point, we were going to shoot in Nova Scotia to get the tax credit, which was very high at the time. And we kept moving the, the ball around anywhere, somewhere between $3 million and $4 million. And, of course, finally settled originally close to $3 million, which actually ended up being too little for this film. Wow. But, <laughs> right. But, um, you know, given the level of cast and, and all, as I said, all the difficulties of the script, it also has nearly 140 setups. So 
Um, Holy moly. Budget is something that people move around a lot. And I think Mm -hmm. one of the things I learned is that you really have to respect what your script demands. And at one point when people were saying under a million, I basically said, okay, if we're going to do under a million, I'm throwing the script out and writing something else because this cannot be done for that. And basically we just changed producers and picked up and moved on. And one of the key things that I had in my pocket was I've worked a lot internationally yeah. with foreign partners. So um, I brought on a German producer through a, a program that I had met called Transatlantic Partners, and his name was Saul Bondi. It's a program to develop international partnerships. And Saul and I decided that we would take the film to the VFRTE which is public television in Germany and France. And they funded, I think, three of my previous projects, which is in itself unique as, a, as an American filmmaker. So we pitched the film to them, and they actually were our very first financing was German money. And then Saul was able to bring in German state funds called the Meeting Board. So that was our very, very first financing. And then we came back to the States and was like, then we had a really tough road to hoe. And our producer, main producer in the States, is Oren Moverman, who was just incredible, like bringing in cast, etc. And together we began casting in order to drive the financing. And um, uh, Lord yeah. Byrne signed onto the film like a year and a half before there was any American financing, but. Um, we began casting and casting and then uh, looking where we would shoot it to get tax credit and sort of building a new model and the ball started gaining some snow basically, you know, rolling a ball down the hill. Sure. Um, sure. I mean, every, that everything that, that you're saying, mm-hmm. oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say everything that you're saying is very consistent, seems very consistent with my next question. Um, I sure. mean, it, it kind of leads right into my next question where, about, you know, where you, you, you started um, your answer just now talking kind of about like where you have to figure out where you can be flexible when figuring out the budget and you kind of let it, you can kind of let it guide you. But there is a point where you have to like stick to your guns and say, no, this is a, this is a, this is a bigger film than, you know, less than a million. This is, this needs to be in there. Similarly, um, I know you got a lot of pushback from from investors on including, you know, the controversial sex scene um, that, you know, you feel is very important and I completely agree is vital to the to conveying what you need to convey in the in the film. Um, you know, I would I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that, like what, what you know, at what point, when, do you, how many times do you feel like you make the decision, like this is what I'm going to, you know, fall on my sword for. This is what is worth it. I'm going to fight back and this needs to be in. And do you think, you know, as a advice for filmmakers, do you recommend you always kind of say like, you know, what you really want creatively or, you know, are there times when it's a pick your battles, like there are a few things that need to be in here, but maybe some things can come out. Well, I think it's a really good point and question because there isn't a rule and successful filmmakers are basically have antenna in the back of their head, so we're always trying to figure out how much can we get what we want. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, you know, the, I had one. I could only ever make this film once. It's a very mm-hmm. important story to me, and so 
the bar was very high for what I would accept and not accept. And of course I compromised on a ton of things. Don't get me wrong. But one thing I wasn't willing to compromise was that these more suggestive and explicit scenes that I think had ever been seen about what happens between a child and an adult with child sexual abuse in the bedroom had to be in. And if they weren't in, I wasn't going to make it. Now that, that falls two ways. And I want to say, you know, when we were shopping this film or in myself and then eventually Lauren, in, Lauren Singley and then he brought in Larister, um, so we were, we were adding producers when we were shopping it. Of course, everybody was saying not only is this explicit, but moreover, it's about child sexual abuse and who wants to see about film about child sexual abuse because it's a downer. So that's even a bigger obstacle before you get to the sex scenes. However, on the other hand, for Simone and I, our relationship and the, uh, the impact we wanted to have, we were speaking a whole other narrative to develop an impact strategy, which was here is a film about child sexual abuse that has never been made before that will change the conversation. And to that end, the fact that I stuck to my guns was very valuable when we discovered that we needed to bring in not just equity money, but this new model of bringing philanthropic money to the production, not just to the impact. And I want to pass the ball back to Simone on that conversation. Yeah, I was just going to add that, you know, um, when you're working with what we call this issue-based fiction, Mm -hmm. you really want investors and financial support that are aligning with the big picture mission and the vision of the filmmaker, the vision for the film, um, because they're going to be your champions for much more than financing. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Jen and I, you know, from the beginning had this outreach plan, right? And so when we were approaching, you know, when it, when it came down to when our first original um, equity financing fell through and we realized that there was this hole and that, hey, we could potentially utilize what we know in documentary and philanthropic funding um, for this model to get this film made, um, you know, the engaging, engaging people that really understood that bigger picture was critical to this. Um, and we had several of these. We were very fortunate uh, as we, you know, plugged away on this and <laughs> specifically Game Changer Films. Um, and then Regina But that's Sully. equity. Just point out. Yes. Just point so, out Game Changer is an equity financer. Exactly, and they were equity financer that, um, but that also understood the what we were looking to do as a mission of the film, um, and they fund uh, they were funding um, female directors particularly, and then we had two of our other um, major philanthropic donors, Regina Scully and Linda Weinman. So this combination, and of course others, but this combination, the power that came behind this film, both on the equity and philanthropic side, all was looking towards the overall um, mission of the film, even in addition to the commercial aspect. 
Yeah, I mean, you ladies just answered my next question. Um, but my next question was going to be just, that, you know, in terms of in your specific case or overall in general, with filmmakers, is there something specific that you look for, um, you know, when seeking out investors? And it sounds like a key aspect of that is finding somebody who kind of is in line with the mission and the message of the film so that they, you know, when you're having a conversation about how important it is to include a sex scene and how important it is to have this location or do this this or whatever, it's like they're understand they're behind you and what you're trying to do and what you're trying to say. Um, is there? Yes, you, I, I, I agree with you. Of, of course, about that. I think equity is always looking at the bottom line: will money be made? Will money mm-hmm. be lost? And sure. I think the leverage that we were able to add by bringing in philanthropic donors that were only interested in the impact was incredible. Um, yeah. You know, Game Changer was an amazing central figure to putting this together on the equity side, but their mission is an issue. Their mission is to make films by women directors that make money. So that's their mission, and it's in their statement. And then our philanthropic donors, their mission would have been that we make a film that changes the world and changes the dialogue. And together, those two... Sure. Entities adding in the German component, which actually the German mission, yes, you know, if it makes money, fine, but the German mission is only art. So that kind of covers the, the art. Yeah, it's like art um, meets commerce meets message. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I think that's what we tried to do for everyone, you know, um, is to create something in which we created a new language artistically that would hopefully meet audiences and that would change the world. Now, the biggest risk in this whole game is the equity partner. I mean, Game Changer theoretically was taking Game Changer and our other equity partners, they're not the only one, were taking the biggest risk because a film about sexual abuse right. is in fact um, certainly not a recipe to make money. So we just happened to hit an amazing, miraculous moment in time yeah. and luck and have succeeded in, in being able to achieve all three. But that, you know, that you can't count on. Right, you can't you can't count on a historic moment um, that spread throughout the entire industry and world. You're like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Uh, two, I think you said you it was two or three years before the Me Too movement even started. Um, yeah. So, um, and then I guess this last question is for both of you, um, just in terms of the HBO of it all. You know, it's, it's, it's not that common that HBO acquires a film that's already completely done, but after, you know, the, the standing ovations and, and great reception that you guys got at Sundance, um, you know, they, they came into the fold. Um, can you guys talk a little bit about how they approached you and what that process was like getting involved with HBO? Yeah, Jim, why don't you start it? Yeah, why don't you start and then I'll, because, yeah. Sure. So, you know, there we were at Sunday, (laughs) you know, the typical independent film, you know, shaking in our boots, what's going to (laughs) happen? Our, our, you know, our careers are going to be over. Are people going to run out of the theater screaming? Um, Let me out. And um, instead, you know, People stayed in their chairs and didn't move, and we were in the essays 120 
20s. And then they didn't stay in their chairs because they were standing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and then we got that incredible standing ovation. In fact, I ended up getting five at some of every screening. But what I understand is that um, Len Amato and um, Tara were in the audience, and literally Tara called uh, Len Amato the head of HBO, and he called our agent, our sales agent, during the credit, and and started the bidding on the premieres, oh and there were other other people as well, theatrical bidders as well. And I think that um, what you know, of course, as a typical indie filmmaker, I went into Sundance thinking we were going for a theatrical release. But when we sat down and had a long conversation on the phone with Len and Tara and talked about exactly what they were going to do for this film in terms of reach, I think, you know, within hours I had done a 180-degree turn because what HBO and television was offering us was amazing millions and millions of eyeballs on this film and quickly so that we could capture this energy of Sundance and you know, get this film out to the widest possible audience to do exactly what the mission was, which is to change the conversation about child sexual abuse. And not just in this country, but around the world. And that's what we've been doing. I've been on the road nonstop, country by country. Um, We already have millions and millions of viewers in the States. It just uh, opened in Latin America, in Southern Africa. It's opening all over Europe. It just played in Melbourne, Canada. I mean... The film is having extraordinary impact, and that's because we went with HBO and not a typical theatrical distribution. Right. And I would say to add to that, I mean, I'll never forget we're at Sundance, and we had our first kickoff call with the HBO team, and there were about 20, 25 people on the line. And they wanted to hear about what we wanted to do with the film in terms of outreach and changing the world. And I was like, whoa, this is just extraordinary. And fast forward, as Jen is saying, today I'm working day-to-day with their CSR corporate social responsibility team on, you know, looking at, okay, how can we bring the film to various communities? Um, How can we start initiatives uh, using the film and using the HBO broadcast, creating materials of education? So they've been just just extraordinary in terms of uh of what we i mean we could never have imagined the um the uh support and kind of just real understanding of what the film can do so and really quickly that's the other thing yes in now (laughs) we were in sundance five five months ago and it's just extraordinary. And the Please, other big um, news, so the film has been nominated for two Emmy Awards. Um, what? That's yes. Congratulations. Best Actress, Laura Dern, and Best TV Movie. Oh, my um, gosh, that's so exciting. What is the preparation, and how do you get um, those channels working to make sure that um, everyone working on this amazing production um, gets recognized? Well, I think it's it's something actually that is the opposite. I think by going with an incredible distributor company like HBO, the muscle that they have and the ability that, that they have to promote a film like this, which is an, a, essentially an independent 
project, but to take it from being this, you know, film that nobody knew about five months ago, HBO just was able to pour incredible promotion into it, and suddenly it's a national conversation piece. We're incredibly grateful to HBO for everything they've poured into this film so that it could get out in the world and seen by as many people as possible. And that's what helped it. I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal that here we are, again, a film nobody knew about. Um, and then I would also add, just from the outreach perspective, our, all of our, you know, we have the, all these organizational partners that have been supporting us as well through the through this distribution process and the broadcast and they are just thrilled to see that this film that talks about their issues in a very organic way and a very true and authentic way to the issues that they work with day to day on child sexual abuse and trauma. And for a film like this to now be recognized in this way in terms of the Emmys and the press coverage, um, that's also um, part of the mix of what's happening in the cultural zeitgeist around the film. Ladies, it sounds like an absolutely incredible journey, and I just want to thank you for taking the time to, you know, have a, this chat with us because I think, you know, the past couple of minutes have been, have been a wealth of information for our listeners that are looking for, you know, insider tips on, you know, getting your film's funding and what to look for investors. Um, and congratulations on not only having a successful and original film, but also just uh, be, have it being so successful and putting out such an important and incredible message. Uh, so thanks, ladies. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So hi, Crystal. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been a NYWIFT member for a very long time, um, and you have achieved some great successes in your life, and I really do think that our members will be able to um, learn something from you and also take with them along the way some helpful um, insight and, and also inspire them to keep doing what they're doing. So it's great to have you on our show for a variety of reasons. And speaking of variety, um, you have recently contributed to Variety with a column, a guest column that was entitled Hollywood Needs to Include People with Disabilities on Both Sides of the Camera. Uh, I would love to know your insight on that. On the article, you mentioned the current statistics uh, that need to change the narrative about people with disabilities. And in order to increase growth and opportunity for those with disabilities both on screen and behind the camera, I was wondering what do you think would be the first steps um, that should be taken that should make this happen? Well, hello, Margarita. Again, it is really my honor God, to be with you. Uh, I love being a member of Dialyst. And so I think that, um, you know, being able to share what has been my experience as being on both sides of the camera. Um, you know, the article in Variety came about because I was asked to speak at the American Disabilities, one of the uh, celebrations at the Rayburn uh, building on the Hill. And speaking about, you know, the statistics at Hollywood, that the uh, event, uh, done by Respectability uh, was entitled From Washington to Hollywood. 
And it made me really start thinking about how do we increase the opportunity, you know, for those with disabilities, both on screen and behind the camera. And what really shocked me as I went to do research, you could find a few articles about the need for representation of people with disabilities in front of the camera, but there were literally no studies, no statistics about people, particularly with physical disabilities, behind the camera. And so I look at my struggle. You know, with the Me Too movement, so many inroads have been made. But I also look at the fact that there are women who don't have as many credits as I do. I'm a member of the Producers Guild, you know, I was. Um, I've, I've made several documentaries. You know, I've written numerous scripts. I'm a published author. Um, and yet, I still can't get a job behind the camera uh, because people see me in the wheelchair because they think about all the things, all the stereotypes that could go wrong, but they never look at the body of my work. And so when you ask what are the first steps that I think should happen, you know, NYWIS is doing one of those first steps. You know, they have a uh, grant that is for, you know, women with disabilities, uh, filmmakers, and that is one of the first steps. But the other step really is you have to see me as a creative person first. Like, we have to change that narrative. I am not a great filmmaker because I'm a quadriplegic. I was a great filmmaker because before I became a quadriplegic. And just like we have asked those to stand up and give voice to the Me Too movement, we need people to stand up and give voice and respect and honor our because honestly, you know, when you are quadriplegic or dealing with any other physical disability, you're brilliant. Like you're thinking out the box every day because you have to do that every day just to survive. And you bring that sensitivity, that ability to overcome any challenges into the filmmaking process. And what is filmmaking all about? It's really about telling the story of our lives. And so I think, you know, first, you know, we have to have more uh, financial support uh, to say, hey, I'm not holding it against you because you're a person with a disability. You know, then B, we have to change the narrative. Um, and it hasn't changed within our community. My next question, uh, you also mentioned in your article um, your film, Black Women in Medicine. Um, was that your first film? Can you expand on what you've learned in the process that might be able to help other filmmakers wanting to get their film out there? Variety was kind enough to allow a photo to be included, and that photo was shot when I was filming Black Women in Medicine. Because that day I was interviewing 
the wonderful uh, Mayor David Deacon, uh, New York City. And, you know, I thought about that day because his office was located in Columbia, and it was definitely it was wheelchair accessible, but it was really crowded and tight to get there. And I think about how one of the things in the process when I made Black Women in Medicine, I shot in eight locations around the country. And many times there are people who said, well, couldn't you just get a, a photograph? Well, I shot one of only five black women in America that's a cardiothoracic surgeon. And, yes, we could have got a photo, but that image of her doing open-heart surgery speaks just volumes. So what I learned was, yes, I'm in this wheelchair. Yes, it's a little more difficult getting to locations. Yes, sometimes things come up, but like any other process or any other filmmaker, you just roll with it. And you really have to stick with your vision. Because I'm not going to make something that's less bad or that my vision is, is shortchanged uh, because I can't actually get to that person. You know, I'm not going to just do, you know, black backdrop because it's difficult. You know, you have to step up and, and meet that challenge. And one of the things I see particularly with our younger filmmakers, and they're in a hurry to get their film out there, that they cut and they cut because they cut corners and they, you know, and they end up with a piece that, yes, tells a story, but is it as visually engaging? I mean, one of the things I love about Black Women in Medicine is that it's really a beautiful film. And then it was edited by Jason Pollard. And, um, you know, he had a real sensitivity uh, to, to Black Women in Medicine. And so what I learned in the process, can I say this to any other filmmaker, don't lose track of your vision. Don't let the obstacles hold you back. You know, somewhere I read some great person wrote, you know, uh, an obstacle is what you see when you get distracted. Just don't get distracted. Make the best quality piece. And it may take a little longer, but it is so worth it. Along with sticking to your vision, do you have some other advice for some first-time filmmakers with disabilities or crew working with people with disabilities on a project that might help? You know, when I started making films, my first film was on 35 millimeters. So, you know, I'm one of those old-school filmmakers. I made a short film. I'm sort of snob about that. You know, it's really important, whether you have a disability or not, to surround yourself with the best crew. You know, one of the things is that people will work for me, 
They would work extra long hours, really, really dedicated, because they say, you know what? Your set is so calm. Your set, you are very specific about what you need. You allow us to do what we do as professionals, and that's really important. You have to surround yourself with people that see the vision and people that care about you, that care about the project. Because when you're just hiring somebody and you're just paying whoever, and it doesn't matter if you have a lot of money or you have a little money, but when it's based solely on transactions, that is what you get. You have to surround yourself with people that have heart, that love what they do. You know, by the time I made Black Women in Medicine, I was a quadriplegic. You know, I mean, my hands and legs were paralyzed. And my crew was very protective of me. You know, they know that I worked as many hours as they did, that I was there when they started and there when they left. But they also respected my time schedule. Uh, They were very sensitive. If I was having a hard day, they didn't hesitate to help me get something to eat or help me drink something or to pick locations that were accessible to me. And when we shot a a girl's basketball team, you know, one of my co-producers said, you know what, Crystal, you don't need to be there for us to get this B-roll. You know, and again, because this was a very seasoned producer, you know, I delegated that. But the most important thing, whether you're a first-time able-bodied filmmaker or with a disability, is to get a crew that respects you, that loves the work that they're doing, and that is going to take pride in your vision and want to help you make that vision a reality. So aside from being an activist and a filmmaker and an author, you're also founder of uh, You Are You, The Right to Be. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that and what are some of the goals for You Are You? Well, You Are You, The Right to Be is my company. We're a 501c3. And basically, I am a content producer. And what we do, we are the intersection of arts, humanities, science, and technology. And we utilize the arts to change the narrative, to change the image of of whoever. I mean, it's not just people with disabilities, but with women, with people of color, uh, we show or capture the triumph of the human spirit because everything is media, right? Everything is media. Nobody believes, takes it seriously. If they haven't read it in a paper, saw it on television, heard it on the radio, or saw it on the Internet. And so for me, I have taken my creative talents, channeled them through You Are You The Right To Be to change the narrative to uplift and not degrade. And so this is what we do. And whether it's the project Changing the Face of STEM, which is a national education project, 
in one of the new films I'm working on, whether it's a novel without a trace, you know, whether it's a series of articles, it is always about uplifting uh, because there is so much content out there that is just so negative. And when you produce negative content, you add to the well of hate. And you are you, the right to be is just that. You are you and you have the right to be. And we're going to lift that up. And so I get very excited. Our next project is called Open Season. And it's about the systematic murders of black men and black women. Um, looking at the issue of racism in America, but not just focusing on the issue of racism, because we already know that, but how do we move to the next phase of healing? So I'm really excited. It's a good time to be creative, um, especially if you address issues that make the world a more equitable society. As always, you have the most eloquent words, so thank you. Is there anything else that you'd like to include or mention um, while we have you? You know, I think that as a filmmaker that we have a responsibility. And yes, we want to entertain, but I think that there has to be a thread within our work that asks people what is their belief system? How do we challenge your heart and mind? We don't have to tell you what to do, but we want you to examine what are the possibilities, what are the unlimited possibilities, what does the triumph of the human spirit look like? And sometimes those stories are not easy to tell. Sometimes I'm writing right now a book called A a Series of Short Stories, a tear that has nowhere to go. Because they're really, really dark stories. But within those dark stories, there is that thread that is a thread of hope. And I say to any filmmaker, when you have a vision and you feel it in your heart, you feel it with every cell of your body, hold that vision. Hold it at the light will show you where you need to go, where that crew is, where that funding source is. Just stay away from naysayers. Because the thing about naysayers are they're mad because they couldn't do it, because it wasn't their idea. You know, you have a gift within you. Nurture it and tell your story because you have a right to be. Thanks so much, Margarita. Namaskar, everybody. So there you have it. Some amazing women that we were um, delighted to share and highlight and and help inspire everyone to um, hear their stories, hear their successes, 
and hopefully will help you all on your projects um, and while you're trying to get things done and uh, working through challenges and um, going through the motions. It's, uh, it's a little difficult a lot of times when you're feeling things are not going the right way and um, so hopefully this will help you all. We hope to bring some more of these um, inspiring stories each month. As I've said, um, we'll be back to normal in September. And thanks, everyone. And if you have any comments or questions, uh, send your email to communications if you're also interested in being a guest on our show. Thanks all and have a wonderful week. Talk to you soon. Bye.